Our reading from the scriptures today is Romans 8, verses 26 to 39. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he searches our hearts, um, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes with God's word in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all all things, God works for the good of those who love him. For who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then say we in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How would he not also, among with him, graciously give us all these things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can he he condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to, to life, is at the right hand of God, and who is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the presence or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Invite my friend Dr. Matthew Beeland to come join me. A conversational sermon. Matthew has been at Drew University for almost 20 years. Since 1997. Since 97. And uh, got his PhD at, at Drew, and then Drew had the good to hire him and to keep him on campus. He is now the university archivist. And uh, if some of you have had any history with Drew, Matthew knows about it. Not about your history, but about that period of time. Um, If you'd like to tell him your history at Drew, you can. 
Uh, we're, uh, a few months ago, I, um, I went to the archives to hear Matthew give a presentation with Dr. Vivian Bull on Nestorian crosses. And uh, we are grateful that Matthew can give a little bit of that presentation and was able to bring some of the crosses today. Before we get to the crosses, um, I just want to work a little bit with that scripture that Ben just read from the early church community in Rome. Because what their faithfulness, uh, how their faithfulness was articulated translates through every culture cultural experience of Christianity all the way up to the present. That one passage that that Ben read in Romans 8 says, all things work together for good for those who love God. The early church had this sense of trust that no matter what was happening in their lives, no matter what injustice they were facing or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. They knew that all things work together for good for those who love God. It's part of our DNA, brothers and sisters, to be hopeful people, to trust that God can bring good things out of absolutely terrible things. Um, Throughout history, this has been part of our DNA, and... We get it not only from that particular scripture, but from Jesus' whole life, his whole ministry, his death and resurrection. The cross, the symbol of Christ on the cross, is a symbol of even that. All things work together for good for those who love God. The cross is this perplexing image. Some say it's the metaphor of the West that depicts Jesus' death, the instrument of his death, but we know that that's not where the story ends. God takes the worst that humanity can throw at God's greatest gift and brings new life out of that death. God takes the worst hatred and violence that can be done to God's greatest gift in Jesus the Christ and from the cross responds with nothing but love Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In that kind of love, in that kind of spirituality, we find our salvation. Uh, That cross for Christians throughout the last 2,000 years has been that symbol of all things work together for good for those who love God. The symbol of the cross has been an expression in every major tradition. You've heard me tell a little bit about the Russian Orthodox tradition with the time with young Christians cross is central to their faith. The cross has been central to expressions of Christianity throughout the world. Fast forward to the 4th century when the patriarch in Constantinople, which was one of the five major hubs of Christian leadership at the time, uh, the patriarch was Nestorius. Nestorius was the patriarch for three years, and in his tenure... He had some, um, some courage to question the understanding of one of the major theological tenets of the Eastern Church, 
which was a term in Greek called the Theotokos, which means the mother of God. Mary was referred to as the Theotokos, the mother of God. And he said, well, she was the mother of Jesus and the mother of the incarnate God in Jesus the Christ, but she really wasn't the mother of God who created the heavens and the earth. Well, that ticked some people off. And they said, we have got to take him out. And so the patriarch of Alexandria called for a council that would take place in Ephesus to discuss whether Nestorius was a heretic or not and whether he should be silenced, banished, killed, uh, sent to a monastery. And who knows how communication happened. That's That's a large area between Constantinople and Alexandria in northern Egypt. But wouldn't you know it that the Egyptian delegation got to Ephesus first before the delegation from Constantinople got there and they decided not to wait. (laughs) So they had this little uh, conference and decided to banish Nestorius and take him off of the, the throne of the patriarchate in Constantinople before he and his people even arrived. So he spent a good bit of the rest of his life in a monastery in prayer and sticking with his theology. But the Nestorian church continued, even though he was not um, in, in the office of patriarch in Constantinople. Fast forward a few hundred years. Should we, should we pass the baton on that? Yeah, I think we should. Okay. We will be fast-forwarding eventually. (laughs) Good, thanks. All right, thank you. All right, so fast-forward from the fifth, uh, 430s to China in 635, because that's when Nestorian Christianity first reached China. And um, that was the first wave of Nestorian Christianity These crosses I have here are part of a second wave. Why second? Because in 845, Christianity was wiped out of China, Nestorian Christianity. It wasn't until 1260 to uh, 1368, the Yuan dynasty in China, a Mongol dynasty, that these crosses I have here, which are just part of a collection of about 414 crosses at Drew, second largest in the world, mind you, um, were produced. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk around with some of these so you can get a, a sense of what they are. And these will be out later on at the end of the service if you want to see them. These crosses are bronze. And again, 1260 to 1368, these are anywhere from 650 to 750 years old. They're made of bronze. Most of the people who've handled them have not used gloves, but I am, just for preservation. 
Most of these crosses that have been discovered, and these became very, I don't want to say popular, but became uh, artifacts of interest in the 1920s and 30s, particularly um, among Western Christian missionaries. They were dug up in farms and fields. They were found in curio shops and these Western uh, missionaries would come by and, and look at them and were very interested in them. Now, for those of you who've already seen these, you probably noticed not all of these are of cruciform style. This little guy I have here in my left hand is, is a bird. They're often uh, images of two birds looking at each other, stars, things of that nature. We know that the Nestorian influence waned in China in 1368 because that was the end of the Yuan dynasty, the Mongol reign. After them came the Ming dynasty. And they didn't want anything to do with Christianity either. They uh, kept foreigners out of, of China. And uh, so these crosses sort of have an image of, or a representation of ongoing persecutions and you know, high points of Christian influence in China and low points. Um, most of them were found in a certain area too in China in the Yellow River called the Ordos Loop or it's a sort of a plateau. And um, when you get a chance, if you do, to come afterwards, you'll notice too, we're talking about symbols. There's a lot of symbols of the, the swastika here, which is a little disturbing at first until you realize that the swastika is an ancient symbol. It's a pre-Christian symbol. It's a pre-Buddhist symbol. It's a pre-Chinese symbol. This comes from early India. And when we think of the swastika, we unfortunately think of 1940s and the Nazis who sort of inverted it. This is a different symbol for them. So it's... It's very interesting, and I invite you afterwards to come up and take a look at these. Again, the second largest collection of these in the world is uh, right down the road. The largest is in Hong Kong. Go figure. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Uh, Matthew and I had some, some conversation this week about this. And on, on, you know, what happened to these folks? Do you think that these crosses were used as um, a secret symbol to let other Christians know that these were part of the faithful community that they wanted some people to recognize and other people to not recognize to keep them somewhat safe? It's quite likely. Um, it's quite likely. You talked some with a little bit with uh, the children about how some symbols are sort of hidden so that we uh, uh, you have to worry about persecution, that sort of thing. I think they were. We think some of them were just worn as we might wear crosses. There's some speculation that some were put on the bridles of horses, which is interesting. That kind of lends itself to our sort of common everyday objects, but having a sort of holy significance. Mm. Um, we think some of them maybe have been used as stamps in some way. Mm. Uh, they have that sort of imagery. Right. Those, some of you have been to Tizé. You know the Tizé dove 
is also known as a tese cross, but it was specifically made so that it didn't look Christian, so that Christians in the Soviet Union could wear it and not be persecuted. Uh, it was a symbol of faith, but it was not obvious that it was a cross. And some of these are not obvious Christian symbols. They're, they're uh, much broader than just a cross. Are there Nestorian Christians still in that area or anywhere in the world? Do you know? Um, I, I imagine there are today. Some of the documents we have at Drew, of course, there's a whole sheaf of documentation on, on these and how Drew got them and other things. But I've read an article in 1966 in which Robert Bull, the Drew person who was very much involved with these, describes how in 1966 there were roughly 250,000 Nestorians. Most of them were in Russia, in the Middle East, and in India. But there were 3,200 in the United States. There were 10 churches. And it was known as the Holy Apostolic and Catholic Church of the East and Assyrians. Um, So... These things are 700-odd years old, and yet there is there a heritage, and there is a 20th century presence, and I'm pretty sure a 21st century presence as well. Oh, all right. So even though Nestorius was accused of heresy, there's a certain flavor of Christianity that continued, even though he was deemed a heretic. So would these folks who have made these crosses seven or eight hundred years ago or wore them or put them on their horses, would they be considered Christians? I think so. And you think about it, you think 700, 800 years from now, what will people remember of our Christianity? Will they remember these heretical things? Maybe the scholars will, but these are still Christians. Those things kind of fall away and the lineage and the, uh, the heritage of these things and how they've faithfully been passed down uh, as symbols for us, I think is very inspiring. Thank you. That may be helpful for us as United Methodists in this day and age. When we are at our worst and when Christians are at our worst, we decide who's in and who's out. Whose theology is acceptable and whose theology is not acceptable. Jesus told us to follow him. And we do that in many different ways. And to follow Jesus in one context may look very different than following Jesus in another context, in another culture. So these crosses may be a helpful reminder to us that there are many ways to follow Jesus and many cultural expressions of that faith. And we are called to to bear the cross, to wear the cross, to display the cross, to continue to share the cross with the next generation and let them discover what it means in their context, in their time. Praise God for those faithful ones who have shared the faith and shared the faith and shared the faith all the way down to us. Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. As long as we have life and breath, brothers and sisters, let's share the Christian faith with love, with compassion, and with hope. May God bless us in that journey of discipleship. Amen.
after the service, feel free to look at some of these crosses up close. Matthew will be there to uh, explain what we just ask you not to touch, right? Unless you have, unless you brought your white gloves, then. <laughs>